Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. On the morning of March 12, 1982, the headless body of a man was discovered in a truck on a secluded dirt road in rural Queens County, Nova Scotia. The gruesome scene initially looked like a suicide, but there was no gun found with the body. Whoever it was, he had been shot at close range in the face, and the gunshot blast had decapitated him. It was definitely a murder. But who was he? The keys were still in the ignition, and his false teeth lay on the ground, covered in blood and skull fragments. Checking the truck's license plate, it didn't take long for the local RCMP to confirm that the body in the truck belonged to Billy Stafford, a man well-known to everyone in the area, including the police. Couldn't have happened to a better guy, thought local RCMP Corporal Howard Pike. Three days later, Billy Stafford's common-law wife, Jane, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. That woman deserves a medal, said the arresting officer. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a marriage that ended in a brutal death. A woman who, after years of physical, sexual, and mental abuse, finally struck back. But was it murder or self-defense? Her story would force the issue of domestic violence into the public consciousness. And her murder trial would compel the police and the courts to re-examine how intimate partner abuse was treated in Canada. But what price would the woman ultimately pay for fighting back and speaking out? This is Pushed to the Limit, the Jane Stafford story. Stop him! I'm teaching my son a lesson. But Jane, why do you want to kill Billy? I'll sell you off your family. What's one by one? On the morning of March 12, 1982, 
Jane Stafford woke up in a daze. Had she dreamt about what happened the night before? Or was it actually real? Was Billy dead? Or was he going to walk back into their house and kill her? Six years. That was how long she had been living with Billy Stafford and had been suffering from his almost daily abuse. He had beaten her unconscious, knocked out her teeth, shot at her, and sexually degraded her. And according to him, it was always her fault. Jane had eventually come to believe it and felt she had no way out. He would find her and kill her if she left. And he had threatened to kill her family too. Jane knew she was in a life-or-death situation. And then something in her just snapped. When Billy said he was going to burn down their neighbor's home with them in it, and then harm her eldest son, Jane didn't doubt he would follow through on his threats. Maybe she couldn't be saved, but Jane was not going to let him hurt anyone else. In a moment of fear, Jane shot Billy while he was passed out on the front seat of his truck and then drove the truck to an abandoned road about 10 kilometers from their house. Now, several hours later, in the light of day, Jane was still trying to comprehend what had happened the night before. Was the monster really dead? Jane didn't have to wait long for an answer, since the police from the local RCMP detachment were standing at her door by 9 a.m. that morning. They informed her that Billy had been discovered and he was deceased. Jane fainted at the good news. Her nightmare was truly over, or was it? Two days later, the police returned to bring her in for questioning about Billy's murder. It hadn't taken them long to narrow in on Jane as their number one suspect. Everyone in town knew the way that Billy treated her, and the police had also heard rumors of Jane trying to hire a hitman. Jane initially told the police that Billy was likely killed because of a drug deal gone wrong. But after 10 hours of interrogation, she finally admitted that she had shot him because she feared he would kill her neighbors and her son. In her statement to the police, she took sole responsibility for his death and said she was glad it was all over. The police had a lot of sympathy for what Jane had endured, and no one was going to miss Billy Stafford. On March 16, 1982, Jane Marie Stafford was charged with first-degree murder in the shooting death of her common-law husband, William Billy Lamont Stafford. If convicted, Jane was facing the possibility of 25 years in prison before the possibility of parole. 
Jane Stafford's trial began on November 2, 1982, in the historic 1854 courthouse in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. At 33, Jane looked 10 years older. She had spent four months in prison and was taking medication for depression. Standing beside her in court was a man two years younger than her, Alan Ferrier, a legal aid lawyer. This was only his second murder trial. The case had attracted nationwide attention, and the courtroom was packed every day with people who mostly supported Jane and what she had done. News crews waited outside, hoping to get a comment from the woman on trial for the murder of her abusive husband. Would she actually be convicted? Either way, the outcome of Jane's trial could have a significant impact on how domestic violence was dealt with in Canada moving forward. In what many considered the first battered woman's defense in Canada on April 16, 1911, Sault Ste. Marie resident Angelina Napolitano took an axe and killed her husband, Pietro, while he slept. At her trial, Napolitano's court-appointed lawyer argued that his client had been repeatedly abused by her husband and that he had stabbed her six months prior. But the judge ruled the evidence inadmissible, and Napolitano was found guilty. Although the jury recommended clemency, the judge sentenced her to hang. Napolitano became a cause celebre at the time, with many advocating her sentence be commuted. The federal cabinet eventually did commute her sentence to life imprisonment, and she was granted parole 11 years later. And a famous American case of battered women's defense had garnered worldwide attention just five years prior to Jane's trial. On March 9, 1977, Michigan housewife Francine Hughes poured gasoline around her husband's bed as he slept and set it on fire, killing him. Hughes, who had suffered from years of abuse, was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The case was chronicled in a book titled The Burning Bed and later made into a TV movie starring Farrah Fawcett. In the rural Nova Scotia courtroom, Jane's lawyer, Alan Ferrier, would argue that at the time of the crime, Jane was living as a battered woman and suffered from extreme fear in which she saw no escape from. When Jane killed her abuser, she was acting in self-defense as she feared for her life and the life of others whom Billy Stafford had threatened to harm that evening. While the Crown's job would be to convince the jury that Jane Stafford was in no immediate harm when she killed Billy because he was asleep passed out in the truck. The Crown would contend that the murder was planned and deliberate beyond a reasonable doubt. In their opening statements, there was little debate between the defense and the Crown as to the facts of Billy Stafford's death. 
On the night of March 11, 1982, Jane and Billy were returning to their Bangs Falls home in Billy's truck. On that drive, Billy threatened to burn out their neighbor over an earlier dispute. And he said he was going to deal with her son, Alan. And Jane knew what that meant. When they arrived home, Billy passed out in the truck. And as Jane later told the police, she thought about his threats and something inside of her finally snapped. She decided she wasn't going to live in fear anymore. She took one of Billy's shotguns, put it in the window of the truck, and pulled the trigger. Then she drove the truck with Billy's body inside to a deserted road where she abandoned it. Her son Alan burned her bloodstained clothes, and then Alan and a neighbor broke down the shotgun and threw it in the river from the Bangs Falls Bridge. Jane had also admitted to the police that earlier in the same year, she had asked a friend to murder Billy for $20,000, the amount of his life insurance policy. She wanted him dead. During the first week of the trial, the defense called 16 witnesses to the stand. Family, friends, and neighbors testified that Billy Stafford was a tyrant, and many had witnessed the abuse he inflicted on Jane and their son, Darren. Some of the witnesses had also gotten on the wrong side of Billy Stafford and had seen firsthand how he would react. So-called friends had been punched, shot at, and intimidated by him. Billy Stafford's ex-wife, Pauline, testified that he beat her and their children regularly. He forced the children to eat cigarette butts and also abused the family pets. He was a cruel man in the six years I was married to him, said his former wife. His second common-law partner, Faith Hatt, told the court that she had escaped to Calgary when she was three months pregnant. He was like a mad dog, she said. He would actually froth at the mouth when he came after me. Jane's mother, Gladys Hirschman, testified that she had also suffered physical abuse from her alcoholic husband when Jane was a child. Maybe she thought that was just the way it had to be, said her mother. But she admitted that Jane had told her very little about what she was going through with Billy. Jane's father, who no longer drank or abused his wife, testified that Billy had physically attacked him once. After that, we didn't go around to visit often, he added. A psychologist testified and portrayed Jane Stafford as a woman involved in a seriously sadistic relationship who had shot her husband when her anxiety and fears had reached an extreme level. She was in a situation of overwhelming stress, both physical and mental. Her way of coping was to be passive and compliant. She had the strength to endure the abuse 
but could not see a way out. She believed there was no escape and it was a life or death situation. A psychiatrist who interviewed Jane talked about the shame associated with domestic violence. He said a lot of women in Jane's circumstances would not tell others about the abuse. Many will isolate themselves from family and friends out of fear of being judged and fear of reprisals if they speak out. But after many years of silence, Billy Stafford's victim was finally ready to talk. The courtroom was silent when the defense attorney called his last witness, the accused Jane Stafford. Looking frail and vulnerable, Jane had dark circles under her eyes and she had lost almost 40 pounds on her already petite frame. Several times the judge had to ask her to speak louder as her lawyer guided her through her difficult testimony. For more than three hours on the stand, Jane Stafford recited a litany of physical, sexual, and mental abuse that Billy had inflicted on her and other members of her family. He would often beat her into unconsciousness, and at other times he had pointed a shotgun at her head and threatened to pull the trigger. The week before his death, he had beaten her with a metal vacuum cleaner hose, and she was still covered in bruises when she was arrested. The jury also heard how Jane had been sexually tortured, raped, and forced into degrading sexual acts, including bestiality. When asked what she did about the assaults, Jane said that she didn't do anything. Billy would tell me it was always my fault, she said. And when you hear that so often, after a while, you begin to believe it. Questioned why she hadn't left the relationship, Jane told the court that Billy had threatened to kill her if she did. And he had also threatened to kill her parents and her sisters. And did she take those threats seriously, asked her lawyer. Yes, replied Jane. I knew he would do it. There was no way out. Under cross-examination, Jane admitted that she wanted Billy dead and had tried to hire someone to kill him. The Crown Attorney asked if she was aware of a shelter for battered women in Halifax. Wasn't there another way out, asked the attorney. If I had tried to leave, there would have been more people killed besides Billy, said Jane. Jane said that Billy bragged that he had killed before, thrown a man overboard on a fishing boat, so she had no doubts he would follow through on his threats. His two previous wives had left him, said Jane, and he always said he wouldn't be a three-time loser. In his closing arguments, Jane's lawyer, Alan Ferrier, told the jury that Jane shot Billy as an impulsive reaction to what he said to her that evening. He intended to burn down their neighbor's trailer with them in it 
and also harm Jane's son. And given her violent history with Billy Stafford, she had every reason to believe him. Jane reacted out of a protective nature, and her actions were neither deliberate nor planned. Ferrier then addressed the issue of battered wife syndrome. Jane Stafford was a prisoner in her own home, said Ferrier. He went on to say that the expert testimony from psychologists and psychiatrists who had examined Jane spoke of Jane's victimization and how it amounted to a psychological paralysis. A woman suffering from battered wife syndrome develops a feeling of powerlessness, becomes passive, and is blind to other options, said the defense lawyer. It is a learned helplessness, which explains why the battered woman does not leave her abuser, continued Ferrier. In short, said Ferrier, Jane Stafford was trapped in the relationship and reacted in self-defense. In his closing arguments, the Crown Attorney stated that the Stafford trial was indeed an important case for battered women in Canada. And while he believed that Billy Stafford was a batterer and a bully, he was not the person on trial. Jane Stafford was for first-degree murder. It was the Crown's contention that Jane had planned Billy's murder. She had been unsuccessful in trying to hire someone to kill him, so she waited, and on March 11, 1982, she saw her opportunity when he was passed out drunk. We may sympathize with Jane Stafford and her situation, he said, but the law is the law, and what Jane Stafford did was planned and deliberate. And therefore, as to the charge of first-degree murder, you must return with a verdict of guilty. In his charge to the jury, Justice Charles Burchell advised that they could return with one of four verdicts. Guilty of first-degree murder, guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty. He then explained how each verdict could be reached. The trial had called 46 witnesses in total and had lasted two and a half weeks. On the morning of Saturday, November 20th, 1982, 17 hours after they had begun their deliberations, the jury announced that they had reached a verdict. Jane sat motionless beside her lawyer. If found guilty of first-degree murder, she was looking at life in prison. Jane had already said her goodbyes to her three sons the night before. Hang in there, Jane, whispered her lawyer. It's almost over. Jane could barely hear him over the sound of her own heart pounding in her chest as she stood waiting for the verdict. Not guilty, said the jury foreman. Praise the Lord, someone shouted, 
before applause and cheers rang out in the courtroom. Jane's legs suddenly felt rubbery. Alan Ferrier grabbed her arm to hold her up. With the verdict, the jury of ten men and one woman seemed to be expressing a popular sentiment across rural Queen's County, that Jane Stafford was justified in shooting her violent, abusive husband, Billy Stafford. Moments after the verdict was read, Jane and her lawyer walked out of the Liverpool courthouse to a cheering crowd and dozens of reporters. How do you feel? asked the waiting press. Super, Jane replied. But in the back of her mind, she felt uneasy. She had prepared herself for the worst, and she did not know how to accept the best. She had killed a man, and now she was free to go, free to move on with her life. But in her gut, she knew it couldn't be that easy. And she was right. 
and maybe the case, confirmed that the legal system was finally prepared to protect women from violence in their own homes. But others were not so quick to see the verdict as setting any legal precedent or as a victory in the pursuit of justice. Jane's own lawyer, Alan Ferrier, said he did not see the verdict as having any consequences for other similar cases. Battered women do not have a license to blow the heads off the men who abuse them just because Jane Stafford got off, he told the Halifax Press. You simply won't find many situations in which a jury will say it's okay for a person to kill someone, he added. This was a special case. Wayne McKay, a distinguished professor of criminology at Dalhousie University, asked, Is it the moral of the Stafford case that an abused wife can kill her husband without engaging in the crime of murder? And while he agreed that it was hard to find much sympathy for Billy Stafford, was a man like Stafford a fair target for vigilante justice? In his opinion, Jane Stafford had been the person on trial, but it was Billy Stafford who had been found guilty. And it looked like the Nova Scotia Crown Attorney's Office agreed. On December 15th, less than a month after her acquittal, the Crown appealed the verdict and requested a new trial. In their appeal, the Crown contended that Jane was in no immediate danger from her husband, who was passed out and unarmed at the time of his death. And therefore, she should have been found guilty of first-degree murder, or at least manslaughter. Ten months later, in October 1983, the Crown was successful in the repeal. The verdict of the jury was set aside and a new trial was ordered for Jane Stafford. News of the appeal and new trial received national attention. Jane's lawyer, Alan Ferrier, told the press that he had initially advised the Crown that Jane would plead guilty to manslaughter. She had been prepared to go to jail for a couple of years, but the Crown had turned them down and had gone after her for first-degree murder. And while Ferrier himself had not expected an acquittal, the Crown was very unhappy with the jury's verdict and were concerned that it could be seen as a license for women to kill their abusive husbands. In fact, three weeks after Jane's acquittal, an abused woman in New Brunswick shot her husband in the head, killing him instantly. She was charged with second-degree murder but a jury eventually found her not guilty. In February 1984, nearly two years after Billy Stafford's death, Jane Stafford's second trial was set to commence. And while a conviction and lengthy jail sentence was still hanging over her head, Jane had gotten on with her life after her first trial. She had returned to school and was training to become a nurse's aide. 
her youngest son, Darren, was doing well in school and no longer lived in fear. They were both in therapy. The future looked hopeful, and Jane did not want to go through another trial. On the advice of her lawyer, she decided to plead guilty to manslaughter and hope for a lenient sentence. The courtroom was packed on the opening day of Jane's second trial. Her many vocal supporters had lined up early that morning to make sure they got a seat inside. The case was being watched closely by women's groups across the country, and a member of parliament had even tried to get the federal government to intervene so Jane didn't have to go back to court. But if Jane's supporters were hoping for a contentious and highly emotional drawn-out legal battle, they were out of luck. Jane's manslaughter plea was quickly accepted by the Crown. All that remained was to hear sentencing arguments. The Crown requested a jail term to discourage others from taking the law into their own hands, while Jane's attorney asked for a suspended sentence, saying that Jane would carry the mental scars of Billy's abuse for the rest of her life. Jane's lawyer called only one witness to the stand, Marie Jodry, Darren Stafford's longtime babysitter. The young woman recounted seeing bruises on Jane and Darren often. She said the little boy was terrified of his father and would run and hide when it was time for him to go home. Alan Ferrier then reviewed some of the sexual humiliations Jane had endured. This was not a man. He was an animal, he said. And then he reminded the court what a local RCMP sergeant admitted to saying after hearing that Jane had killed Billy Stafford. That woman deserves a medal. In his remarks, the presiding judge said that Jane had lived a tragic life with a man who clearly showed little humanity. But regardless, battered wives did not have the right to take the lives of their abusers. And while Jane was not a threat to society and was doing well in rehabilitating her life, there must be a deterrence in law. The judge sentenced Jane Stafford to six months in jail and two years probation with a recommendation that she be allowed to commute from jail to attend her classes and complete her nursing program. Two months later, on April 14, 1984, Jane Stafford was released from prison after serving one-third of her sentence. Good luck, Jane. Be happy, said the guard at the prison gate as it closed behind her. Jane had paid her debt to society and could now finally move forward without the threat of any further legal punishment. She was finally free. Not long after her release from prison, Jane changed back to her maiden name, Hirschman, 
and graduated as a fully qualified nursing assistant. She also agreed to cooperate on a book about her life. She wanted to share her experience of domestic violence in the hopes of helping other women in similar circumstances. I want this story to be written, not for myself, but for all those other women out there who are living the same hell as I did, said Jane. Even if one person picks up the book and is helped by it, that will be a reward enough. In 1986, Life with Billy was published. Author Brian Valley retold Jane's harrowing story of abuse in chilling detail. And while many found the book very difficult to read, its publication further generated much-needed attention to the issue of domestic violence in Canada. After the book's release, Jane became a media sensation and a popular spokesperson for women's organizations and domestic violence support groups. She attended workshops and conferences across the country. The once shy, frail woman had gradually gained her self-esteem and confidence back. She was a survivor and she wanted to help other women. She finally had a new purpose in life and when she spoke about the violence she had endured, audiences listened. Her strength and passion were inspiring. But not everyone was happy that Jane Stafford had survived to tell her story of abuse and had been given a light sentence after her manslaughter plea deal. Some people thought she had gotten away with murder. While touring shelters for abused women in Nova Scotia, Jane had to be put under 24-hour surveillance by the RCMP due to threats against her life. Jane tried not to worry, and she wasn't going to let anyone scare her away from the important work she was doing. But friends and family were concerned for her safety. And those who knew Jane were also worried that her speaking engagements and the work she was doing with other abused women was exacting too large of an emotional toll on her. She had helped so many, but she still had a lot of healing to do of her own, and she admitted to feelings of darkness and depression. Friends urged her to take a break. Jane saw a psychiatrist regularly and worked nights at her nursing job. She preferred the night shift because like many victims of abuse, she had trouble sleeping. That's when everything would come back. The images, the sounds, even the smells of her former life. And in her dreams, Billy Stafford was still alive still haunting her. But soon, those difficult memories were replaced by something much more hopeful. On October 10, 1991, Jane married Joel Corkum, 
a man she had been quietly dating for over a year. Joel, a licensed mechanic, was eight years younger than Jane and had three children from two prior marriages. But the unlikely couple had clicked from the moment they met. Joel didn't care about Jane's past and only wanted his future to include Jane. They bought a house in Coal Harbor where they lived with Jane's youngest son, Darren, who was 14. Before Joel, Jane and Darren had been on their own for almost 10 years, and Jane had almost given up on finding love. But now, finally, she had everything she had ever hoped for in a partner. He was her best friend, lover, companion, and now her husband. In the days and weeks that followed her wedding and honeymoon, Jane was on cloud nine. Friends said they had never seen her happier. Then, as their daily lives returned to normal, Joel working days and Jane working nights, they fell into a regular routine, but always saved the weekends for each other. Jane was still doing speaking engagements and working with abused women. Joel could see how those events seemed to trigger a depression in Jane, but he knew the work was important to her. Joel wanted to support Jane and never pressured her to talk about her past. He had read Life with Billy and felt he knew everything about his new wife and the traumatic life she had lived. But there was one issue in Jane's past that she had never discussed with him. In February of 1989, three years after the publication of Life with Billy, Jane was arrested for shoplifting. Her name was back on the front page when local newspapers printed the story of the $38 theft. Jane was charged and convicted, even though a new psychiatrist diagnosed her with a dissociative disorder caused by the childhood trauma and subsequent abuse at the hands of Billy Stafford. The psychiatrist explained that Jane's depression, mood swings, and shoplifting were all related to her illness, and stealing for her was a symptom like overeating, anorexia, or compulsive gambling might be for others. She had a disease. She's a kleptomaniac, he told the court, but she is not a thief. Jane was placed on probation and instructed to continue to seek psychiatric care for her illness. One year later, in 1991, Jane was arrested for stealing greeting cards and cologne from a pharmacy. She pleaded guilty and was fined $375. Hirschman, fined for theft, read the headlines the next day. Jane's name still sold newspapers. Jane was humiliated. The stories in the press about her shoplifting referred to her past and the death of Billy Stafford. But she had fought back against him, and she wasn't going to let her name 
be dragged through the mud again without speaking out. Jane lambasted the Halifax Chronicle Herald for using her name to sell newspapers and suggested they focus on the disease of kleptomania so others could seek help. Myself and people like me have no idea what normal is, she wrote. I must spend the rest of my life learning, one day at a time. And when I mess up, as in shoplifting, it's because I cannot believe that I deserve to be happy or that I am worthy of good things or good people around me. A week later, the newspaper did an interview with Jane about her shoplifting. It's a disease, said Jane, just like alcoholism and drug abuse. And she wanted it brought out into the open. It was a constant struggle for her, and she wanted to help others. Five months later, in November 1991, Jane was arrested for shoplifting at an IGA store in Dartmouth. This time, nothing appeared in the paper, and she kept it a secret from her husband Joel and her son Darren. She was to appear in court on March 4, 1992. In the early morning of February 22, 1992, a worker with East Coast Towing, a tugboat company on the Halifax waterfront, noticed a blue Ford Tempo in an adjacent parking lot. He knew the area well, and he had never seen that car before. Judging by the snow covering it, it looked like it had been there for a few days. And it was still there the next afternoon when Roy and Yvonne Klein drove into the same parking area and parked nearby. Walking past the blue Ford, Roy looked in and noticed a woman slumped over in the front seat. The snow-covered ground showed no footprints near the car. How long had she been there, wondered Klein. Was she asleep? Passed out drunk? Roy got closer and noticed the woman's face had no color. He ran back to his car. There's a woman over there in that car, he told his wife, and I think she's dead. Roy and his wife drove to a payphone and called the police. Later that night, they turned on the news to see if there were any reports about the woman. And there was. In fact, it was the lead story. The body of a woman had been found in Halifax Harbor. The police had actually been looking for her for two days after she failed to show up for her night shift at the Halifax County Regional Rehabilitation Center. Her name was Jane Hirschman Corkum. She was 43 years old. It was shortly after 3 p.m. on Sunday, February 23rd, when the Halifax police arrived at the waterfront parking lot 
next to the harbor. Inside the 1985 Ford Tempo, they found a woman slumped towards the passenger side. It appeared that she had been dead for a few days. There was no purse or identification in the car, but a check of the license plate revealed the car was registered to Joel Corkum, Jane's husband of four months. When the police moved the partially frozen body, they discovered a handgun and a small gunshot wound to the middle of her chest. A single 38 caliber slug was later found lodged in the seat behind the steering wheel. Three more bullets were discovered in a plastic Ziploc sandwich bag on the floor of the car, along with a folded flannel blanket. The police weren't exactly sure what they were dealing with, but given Jane's history and threats against her, they knew that everything had to be thoroughly investigated. Jane's death was eventually ruled a suicide. But in a strange twist in the case, the police later stated that they believed Jane had intended to kill herself but make it look like a murder. They believed she had paid someone to remove the gun, the bullets, and the flannel sheet from the car, but the person failed to follow through with the plan. The police also discovered that prior to her disappearance, Joel, Jane's husband, had been asking around about buying a handgun. Under intensive questioning after her death, Joel admitted that Jane had obtained a gun. He described the gun found with Jane's body. He also described the bag the bullets were in. But he was adamant Jane was not suicidal. She was scared, he told the police. She had received recent threats in the mail and on the phone. And that is why he had helped her get a gun. Police theorized that Jane had used the flannel blanket found in the car to protect her hands from gunpowder residue and to muffle the sound of the shot. Subsequent tests revealed gunshot residue on the blanket and on both of Jane's hands between her thumb and forefinger. Alan Ferrier, the young legal aid lawyer who had defended Jane during her murder trial, hadn't seen her in years, but wasn't surprised to learn of her death. I saw her as a lifelong victim, he said. Her kleptomania was out of control and was a symptom of much deeper issues. It was just too overwhelming for her. He also believed Jane had tried to make her suicide look like a murder to save her family further embarrassment and to not disappoint the many women's groups she had been involved with. Jane never wanted to let people down, he said. Some people's lives are destined to be tragic, and Jane was one of those people. Before she died, Jane recorded a message to her family. 
On the tape, she said she was sorry for the pain and humiliation she had caused them due to her ongoing battle with kleptomania. She then specified what she wanted done with all of her possessions and urged her sons to stay in school. She thanked her family for all of their love and support and said she was at peace. Six years earlier, in the introduction to the book, Life with Billy, Jane wrote, My healing is not complete. I still have hurts. Some wounds will never heal. I cannot erase the scars. I cannot forget. But I can get on with the rest of my life. For me, there is a future. There is hope. There is beauty and happiness and love out there. And I'm going after them. In 1993, author Brian Valley published a second book on the life and death of Jane Stafford Hirschman Corkum. It is called Life After Billy. To this day, many people who knew Jane do not believe she killed herself. Today, in Canada, domestic violence is still a terrifying reality that many families deal with in silence. According to Statistics Canada, one in four women will experience some form of intimate partner violence in their lifetime in Canada. And on a single day in April of 2021, there were 5,000 women and children in shelters for abused women. 500 more had been turned away on the same day because the shelters were full. One woman or girl is killed every two and a half days in Canada. And according to a recent report on femicide, over 50% of those women are murdered by their partner or ex-partner. Over and over in her interviews and speeches, Jane urged women not to be, quote, silent screamers behind closed doors. You are worthy of being heard, she told her audiences. She urged women to leave the first time they were assaulted. Pack your bags and go. Get out, because it will never get better. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.